you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. A very special early bird edition of Fast Money starts right now. Live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, I'm Melissa Lee. Your traders on the desk are Pete Najarian, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. Our mission this afternoon to get you ready for trading tomorrow. And this after yesterday's wild ride that saw the Dow down 800 points, adding to the panic we've seen in the past couple of months. The Dow has now fallen 7% from the highs. S&P 500 down 8%, and the Nasdaq is down 12%. And, of course, a big fear factor for the market is the Fed. The Fed, in fact, just releasing the Beige Book moments ago. Let's get straight to our own Steve Leesman for all the details. Steve. Yeah, Melissa, thanks very much. And the change in the Beige Book, the collection of uh, business anecdotes from the 12th Federal Reserve District, they said the economy expanded at a modest to moderate pace. That's a repeat. But four districts are noting slower or just slight growth. And then there's this quote in the Beige Book, quote, while firms remain positive, quote, optimism has Waned. And let's look at what's behind that waning optimism. Tariff uncertainty is one thing listed there. Rising interest rates is another. Labor market constraints is a third one. In fact, wage growth is toward the higher side of modest to moderate, according to the Beige Book. And, <clears throat> pardon me, tariff-induced cost increases were said to be spreading more broadly. The Beige Book, mentioning the, ta the word tariff 39 times, you can see that's a decline. We've been counting this for, uh, for most of this year. Still an elevated number of tariff mentions compared to the beginning of the year, but down just a little bit. Price increases were at a modest pace. The Fed follows that carefully. And several districts did note that they saw falling oil prices. However, on the other side of that, districts noted rising freight costs and housing prices continued to rise in a majority of markets. Guys, there is some backup in this report here for some of the concern in the markets or in the bond market for the outlook for the economy. And it's the first time I remember really seeing it in quite a few beige books going back now, Melissa. So, Steve, how, is this, how does this sync up with what the market may be expecting uh, you know, later this month in terms of one hike and maybe a more dovish stance in the statement? Well, you know, it's all in the outlook. We don't necessarily see it in the activity. I'll be very interested tomorrow in the ISM report. And, of course, we'll get productivity and trade and we'll get the ADP number to see how, you know, jobs can be a lagging indicator. You want to watch that. But we'll get the jobs number on Friday. Um, Expectations can be important, but they're not necessarily determinative. We'll see. Uh, but, but certainly I'd rather have people hopeful for the future than not. But if they're buying today and not hopeful for tomorrow, I'll take that too, Melissa. All right. Steve, thank you. Steve Lutzman, back at headquarters with the Beige Book. Guy Dami, how are we setting up? Given the Beige Book, given that we're expecting the jobs number on Friday, how are we setting up for trade? Look, the, I think the Beige Book is pretty benign. I think, if anything, if you're in the, the, the Fed is the dovish camp, I think it backs up a little bit, that logic. And, you know, I think the Fed has pretty much told you, I think the Fed has pretty much told you that maybe now they're not going to be as hawkish go, going into next year. December's a done deal. I think Pete would agree with that. I still think they move three times, but the market is probably <laughs> priced in twice. So. I'm not certain, by the way, that the, this sell-off was on the back of the Fed. I think it's got other things going on. 
But obviously, um, ISM and, and jobs on Friday are going to be a pretty big deal. Well, yeah, and, and the ISMs that were out of Europe this morning, composite PMIs, actually. So the industrial data, the PMIs, uh, the things that are representative of trade continue to deteriorate. Europe's a problem. Um, so, you know, when you think about where, where we are, and, and I would argue, once again, I'll say it at 5 p.m., I'll say it at the early bird special here, growth scare is much worse than inflation scare. I'd rather have the Fed involved because they're worried about the economy overheating than the Fed backing off of an economy that is rapidly decelerating. And again, year over year, we came into the first quarter of this year with global growth at 4.3%. We're now at 3%, and it's moving down quickly. Um, so I think these are things for the market to be concerned about. Bad news is bad news for me right now. And I, I, you know, I don't think that you should be, in, be heartened that the beige book is weak enough to take the Fed out of play. What do you think? Are you, are you in the growth scare camp? Yeah. Are we witnessing a growth scare? Is that what the market's digesting? Well, it, it sure seems to me. I mean, uh, Steve talked about a lot of different things when he was talking about the Beige Book, one of them being obviously tariffs and the fact they mentioned it 39 different times. So I, I still think that's the overwhelming aspect of this market in front of us right now. I think that's also connected to a lot of the movement we've seen both on Monday and Tuesday. We had that great move on the one side and then obviously that terrible push to the downside, the accelerated move yesterday. And I think a lot of that is still much more tied to the tariffs. But, yeah, I, I'm with you, Guy. I think we do get this move. I think it's a done deal in terms of December. I think going forward, three, I think, is aggressive. But they're going to be data dependent. That's what they tell us. So if that's the case, maybe it's two, maybe it's three. Tariffs were mentioned 39 times in the Beige Book. They were mentioned a dozen times in the FOMC minutes compared to the six times in the previous FOMC minutes. And overnight from China, we did did get some pretty positive commentary from the Chinese government saying that they were optimistic that implementation would happen, that the talks well, are very successful. Well, they're going to work on it. Yeah, but, but, yeah. But, but, but the president faced them. I mean, when he came home. The tariff and, and, man? Oh, yeah, tariff man faced them. And, and they were, <laughs> it sounds like, a little disappointed. Oops. But then they actually have to play a little bit of a game here. I think it's really important. You know, I, I was looking at Guy's RSS feed. I know that you look at the uh, Lincoln Star Journal out of Nebraska. You might look at sure that. Sure, I do. Did you see that the Nebraska Farm Bureau said that these uh, retaliatory tariffs against aluminum and steel that we put in place earlier in the year is cost their farmers a billion dollars. So when you think about what's going on here, you know, one of the things that stuck out about this beige book is that optimism wanes. When businesses start losing money on stuff that they can't forecast and they can't control and they don't know when it's going to end, that means they buy less tractors, that means they hire less hands, that means that they just have a hard time forecasting. And that's really what's going on as we lap these tax cuts year over year. I think the tariffs are sucking out any tailwind that we had. In the and that's, that's really what the yeah. earnings season kind of gave us, right? I mean, that was the yeah. deliver we got as we went through the earnings season. Once we got through the first couple of weeks, then everything seemed to be related to exactly what you're saying. They don't have clarity. And when you don't have clarity, that's a problem. And people want to hear, hey, what do you really think is going to happen? But they can't forecast that. That's been the problem for quite a while. And that still hasn't been resolved. And it, and it really submarines, I think, the outlook for EPS. I think, you know, remember that scene guy in Karate Kid where the Cobra Kai <laughs> sensei said, sweep the leg? Sweep LaRusso. the leg. And, and basically, you know, what tariffs are doing right now is they're sweeping the leg of, of not only this economy, but the global economy. And, and therefore, everybody expected that we were going to continue to see this fiscal policy dynamic hard at work helping earnings. Companies aren't spending. Companies are, are on hold right now. By the way, if the economy continues to slow, and we're hearing this from guests that come on the show, really smart folks that talk about stretched corporate balance sheets mm -hmm. and where credit markets will start to become a major factor if we slow down even more. And this jives, I mean, you know, finally we've gotten a lot of major investment banks coming out being a little bit more bearish when it comes to their outlook for 2019. This syncs up with what we are saying. When you have J.P. Morgan saying cash is king going into yep. 2019, you have Bank of America, Merrill Lynch saying uh, that they start 2019 bearish stocks 
Morgan Stanley well, says don't buy the dip. Exactly. I mean, all, I mean like, it's really starting to crescendo here. Morgan Stanley was ahead of the seat. It's interesting. Going into this week, last week, I thought that, again, President Trump would come out of this weekend. There's a framework for a deal. We're great friends. And a lot of that actually did happen. And Monday you saw the rally. But never in my wildest dreams that I think he would submarine this rally with the tariff man tweet. So it's very yeah. hard to handicap. So it goes back to this. What are the real headwinds the market is facing? And I think it definitely is tariffs. And, if, you know, you're trying to deal with something in 90 days with the Chinese that has taken 20 years to try to framework out. I don't know how that gets done. Well, you know, it's back to the stock market. It has a MAGA problem. Microsoft, Apple, Google, and Amazon. And, you know, despite the fact that the it's stock... Really catching on. That's really caught it. I guess. The S&P is up 1% <laughs> on the year. It's the only major equity index that's up on the year. Mm-hmm. MAGA is up massively still. I mean, Apple is still up 4 or 5%. Microsoft's up 26%. Amazon's up 42%. These are three of the biggest companies in the world. And so if you think about as we head into 2019, now those companies don't have a huge tariff issue, but if corporate spending, enterprise spending, we obviously know advertising is very cyclical. We know Apple has their own sort of issues that could be very tariff-related. If those companies, if those stocks give it up, what else well, they do have, we have? They have. I mean, well, but, I don't but, think we, we have a MAGA problem. I think we've, we've, we've endured we a MAGA, MAGA problem because they're still up a 50%, pushback. you know what I mean, over but, an We're talking about Apple like they're going out of business. You Pete. can't tell me that Apple's a hot stock Split in the market up. right now. Split them up. Split them up. No, it's done. I'm done. I've said what I'm going to say. Thank well, you. there we go. All right, come on. Give me something. No, but, I, I mean, but, but, but you guys, you're missing a, a major point that most of the stocks in most of these indices are down tremendously. You know, they're trading like we are about to have a recession at some point in 2019. And so if those other names follow suit and they lap 18-month performance, you're going to have a stock market in the U.S. that's down considerably from where it is right well, now. Well, what I would just say is, like, triple Qs have underperformed the S&P. So there was a point in which the industrial stocks were really actually leading the market down for Financials were underperforming, but triple Qs have really been where most of the pain is in semis, yeah. and, and you've talked about that. So uh, my point simply is that I think that those four stocks, which were holding up the market, I think they, f- I think they failed. It's not even about when MAGA gives ground. I think MAGA has given ground, and I think you know we're seeing what that does to the market. Our next guest says the correction is not over yet. Let's bring in Jeff Mills, PNC Financial Services Group and co-chief investment strategist. Jeff, great to have you with us. Good to see you guys. Um, how much more further to go? Well, look, I think when you think about yesterday, just putting aside what the cause was and you think about what's likely to happen in the near term, even on the good days we've seen within this correction, I think we're still operating within that correctional phase. You know, you look back to Monday, the market was up over 1%. Vancers decliners on the NYSE, only 3 to 1. We still have less than 50% of stocks trading to new one-month highs. These are areas that we would look to to tick the box on the technical side to say, okay, we're ready to see a momentum shift now to the upside. And I think this has probably been beaten to death at this point, but with that technical backdrop, I guess it's not that surprising to me to see yield curve inversion lead to a little bit of a one-day panic. Um, Our particular point of view is it's not really a good timing tool. I think you go back throughout history, you have to acknowledge the fact that the yield curve inverted, but you're not going to be able to time the market based on that. And I just I went back and looked at twos and fives inversions just to get a sense for what that tends to do. So you saw an inversion November of 2005, October of 98, and then December of 88. In all three of those periods, it was 18 to 24 months before the market peaked. So I think everybody needs to take a breath, acknowledge the fact that it happened, but it can't be the only thing using your calculus. Okay, so how do you get set up for 2019? I mean, is, is cash all of a sudden looking like a viable option here? 
Look, I, no. I mean, I, I, it's a viable option more so than it was before, clearly. I mean, rates have gone up quite a bit. Now, I'll break my own rule here a little bit, but um, using interest rates to kind of justify where valuations are. When you look out over the long term, it's, it's not such a good idea. Typically, starting in the lowest interest rate regimes, actually returns over the next 10 years are, are not very good. But in the near term, I think low interest rates could still perpetuate valuations where they are right now. I think a way to quantify where rates are versus where fundamentals are, you look at the equity risk premium, right? So flip uh, PE on its head, subtract out the 10-year Treasury yield, you're still at about 260 basis points. 12-month forward returns look generally good when we're at these levels. We're still one standard deviation above average on the equity risk premium. So in that regard, I think we could still have some room to run in the short term. You know, somebody at home might be thinking, though, we were just at three and a quarter percent not too long ago. Yeah. And that's when the problems really started happening. It feels almost like we're boxed in. I mean, yeah, lower interest rates can justify valuation, but for how long? And if that pain point was three and a quarter percent, which was basically the highest we've gotten in the recent interest rate run, I mean, that's not much of a runway. Yeah, and I take what Tim said just a couple of minutes ago as it relates to you don't necessarily want the Fed to have to back off because they simply can't raise rates. And honestly, that's, that's been the case. If you look at the correlation between stocks and interest rates, it's only turned negative three times over the past 20 years. It was 99, it was 06, and it was 14. Not necessarily the greatest environments for markets. And although we didn't go into negative territory, we approached negative territory. So you're getting to a point where interest rates started to look like they were rising to a level that was restrictive to business activity, and then the market was reacting to that. So part of our thesis, although it might not be great long term, is that the Fed needs to back off a little bit if we want to see the market rise next year. It's interesting, though. So, again, I'm not a student of history like you are in terms of the yield curve. But in this case, the 10-year, instead of the front end of the curve catching up to the back, the back end is mean reverted down to twos, which I don't know if that's happened historically, but it's happened at a pretty quick pace. Does that sort of augur anything? Is that a harbinger for bad things? A lot of people are pointing to, I saw headlines yesterday, it's like rates are falling because it's a growth scare. Okay, maybe, but you also have to remember there was negative short positioning in the 10-year futures market. So I think part of the swiftness of the move yesterday was an unwinding of really, really extreme positioning. So that's number one. And we also do a decomposition of the 10-year back at PNC. And you can break the 10-year Treasury yield into inflation expectations, the term premium growth expectations. It's not perfect, but the growth expectations component of longer-term yields is actually still trending higher. Typically, you will see a really significant rollover there when the fixed income market is actually signaling a problem in growth, and we just haven't seen that yet. So how do you position your, your portfolio in this environment? I mean, I think there are, if you go back to the building blocks of asset allocation, so you think about value versus growth, large versus small, just start there. I think there's been this shift to value. People assume that we've crossed this line of demarcation and all of a sudden the growth trade is dead. I don't know that that's necessarily the case. I think we're at somewhat of an unusual point in the business cycle for growth to hand the baton off the value in a really consistent way. Typically, we think economic growth is going to slow next year. Earnings growth is going to slow next year. Most often than not, people are still willing to pay for growth in that type of environment. Typically, you see value accelerate off the bottom in a recovery. So we're not at that stage yet. And then when you think about large versus small, it's a similar cycle argument where large tends to do better later in the business cycle. But then if you look at the fundamentals, valuation is better in large. And then for small caps, you look at the Russell 2000. 30% of companies aren't earning any money. Debt ratios are far worse. So I think we're never going to be all in or all out in asset class, but I think you want to be selective in small cap for sure. Talk about the value, though. So let's drill drill deeper into that because financials certainly could be argued to have extreme value. You can argue in the industrial chain there's very good value. Um, What do you like? Because 
the environment we're talking about, especially the implications for the yield curve, have punished banks, even though banks, many of them are at record earnings. Uh, the industrials, again, we're, we're dealing with maybe a peak auto cycle. We're hearing from the rails. The airlines are suffering under higher energy prices. What do you want to do? Yeah, so in value, I think you're going to continue to struggle because of that. I'm not sure that rates are going to snap back higher. I don't know that we're going to see a really dramatic steepening in the yield curve. So I would still be cautious in some of those areas like banks that are going to be, you know, really levered to that type of environment. Um, when you think about how things are ro- tend to roll in the later innings of the cycle, tech actually tends to still do pretty well. I know we've seen a big rotation into healthcare, so I hate to jump on that bandwagon, but healthcare does tend to do well in the later innings of the cycle. So we're still focusing our efforts in those areas um, and not really, you know, making that big push into value. Jeff, great to see you. Thank you. Good to Jeff see you guys. Mills, Thanks. PNC. Pete, you like healthcare? Yeah, tech, healthcare. I mean, he, music to my ears. Obviously, the financials have been a struggle. We know how much that has, because Tim mentions, I mean, you got record numbers across the board, almost every one of them, and yet, when the do you, like go, have when not do you let go of that trade? Um, I haven't seen a reason is it, yet is to. It's going to take a lot, a lot for you to be it shaken would, out of the trade. It would take a lot to get me shaken out. As a matter of fact, I think some of those are, are better opportunities. Once again, I think that I, I will tell you this: in terms of the sell-off that we saw yesterday, I think there are multiple factors that are much more outside of the market itself than within the market itself. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is the combination of algorithms, which I think was huge. But on top of that, and I know you'll disagree with me well, probably I, I, on this. Algos are killing GE and Deutsche. Well, no, no, they were already dead. Uh, yeah. GE was already. Dead. We yeah. already know that. That's yeah. Dan. That's not went from thirty yeah. to seven like this fast. So no, algorithms didn't kill them. But when you look across the big market, you're talking about algorithms that are now, in some cases, and CNBC just wrote an article about this, eighty percent at times in terms of volume. I mean, that says a lot. But also the uptick rule. If you just go back and look when they took that out, it has changed how the markets trade, particularly to the downside and the pressure that gets into the markets as they push to the downside because the algos but, but can didn't control. They also, it. do this for the last seven years as we literally got every to the upside. Are you saying? Bought. I mean, like you know, listen, we're down. There's no doubt that there are the buyers. Highs. I don't of dips. know why you think this is like a massive structural sort of thing. And I, I'll just tell you this: when I look at names like GE and Goldman uh, and Deutsche Bank, I'm saying that I see a lot of investors. I see a lot of strategists. They're putting in this idiosyncratic basket, and I think that's really, really lazy because. If if I go back and look, back in 1999 or 2000 before things stopped, or 06, 07 before things stopped, everything that was a real problem that made new 52-week lows every day was idiosyncratic. It was their problem. And then once they all started coming together at a but time when we had... Yeah, it's called, no, it's called what we just had. When we just had that 3.25 on the 10-year, and then everything went crazy, right? And the dollar started going well, there, and then crude started but like this. Let me... I, so I, I'm not sure I disagree with what you're saying. Yeah. I think I think sure GE and Deutsche Bank have easy, buddy. I, <laughs> Deutsche Bank and GE have issues that are their own, and yes. they're their own, and they're years, possibly in decades, in the making. What I would say for the market is, I think there's two scenarios that don't look terribly good. This reminds me a lot of late summer 2011, where in August we went down eight percent, then we zigzagged. By the way, this is exactly what we've done all fall. We've had three drawdowns of seven to seven and a half percent, and then it took a while where you bottomed into the new year, but yet before you gave markets a chance to rally or Q116 light. It looks like we could be there again too. All right. Coming up, we are just getting some news out of Facebook, the social media giant supporting Sheryl Sandberg when it comes to the George Soros scandal. We will bring you all the details next. Plus, the CEO of General Motors, Mary Barra, heading to the Hill today to meet with lawmakers after cutting jobs and closing plants here in the U.S. What does it mean for the stock? We will explain. Plus, oil ending the day lower as OPEC gets ready for a big meeting tomorrow. But a top technician says we are heading for an energy breakout. We've got all the details. We are live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. Much more ahead on this very special Fast Money.
electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. We've got a news alert on Facebook. CNBC's Julia Borson is in, in Los Angeles with more on that. Julia. Melissa, Facebook has sent a letter to George Soros' Open Society Foundation, the letter backing Sheryl Sandberg's handling of research into Soros, saying she was being truthful when she said she didn't know that Facebook had hired definers to explore Soros' criticisms of the company. We have here a copy of the letter addressing President of Open Society Foundation Patrick Gaspard. It's written by Facebook's general counsel, Colin Stretch, on behalf of the company's board. He writes, we take issues with several points you raise, saying that Sandberg's question into whether Soros had shorted Facebook stock was, quote, entirely appropriate given her role as COO. The letter also notes that Facebook has, quote, repeatedly and publicly taken responsibility for our failure to identify and respond to this threat sooner, responding to um, uh, referencing Russian manipulation of the election. They note that they've created an independent election council, and they're saying that it's not fair to say that Facebook has, quote, failed to take responsibility, stretch responding to criticisms by Gaspar uh, of the Open Society Foundation, saying that they do believe that Facebook's services help people. So really refuting many of those attacks. You see Facebook shares now down over 2%. Melissa, back over to you. Julia, did you read this as a defense of Sheryl Sandberg in that you think the board stands behind her as COO? Well, it certainly appears so in this letter, Melissa. I mean, this was a specific defense of Sandberg when it came to that issue of definers. Sandberg has faced so much criticism recently for how this whole issue of definers went down. This was a firm that was hired by people who were under her, under the communications team, um, that was used to to share information um, about George Soros and, and attack Facebook's critics. The issue here is that she said she didn't know anything specific about the hiring of definers. Then it came out that she actually had asked her team to look into whether Soros had shorted Facebook shares. So there was this sort of back and forth. Did she know and was she unclear about that? Did she not know? Um, what they're trying to say here is that while it was she did ask her staff to look into whether or not Soros had shorted Facebook, that was appropriate and that was separate mm-hmm. from the firm that was already uh, doing this work on Soros and his organization. All right. Julia, thank you. Julia Borson <laughs> in Los Angeles for us. Here's a question for you guys mm. Okay. Facebook stock game? has not traded too well, I would okay. say, this year. I think no, that's being generous, right? That'd be fair. Let's say you get a headline tomorrow morning. Cheryl Sandberg is out as COO. How does the stock trade, Pete? I would think people would be very nervous about that. I think everybody, yeah. when they look at Facebook, you look at the two names that stand out, obviously, Zuckerberg and Sandberg. And so I think that would knock people down. Now, eventually, in the long run, does that actually maybe work for them? Maybe. But I think in the short term, the sellers come out easily to push this down at least 10, 15 percent. Well, I think change is needed there, and I think the market has, on some level, already pushed somebody out. Um, but I think there are trust issues. Um, and, and let's be clear, my opinion, uh, the company hasn't really acknowledged or taken any, um, any of the blame for a lot of the things that have happened in the past. And, and they can't acknowledge the future. They can't even identify some of the costs and some of the services to their business and the impact that they will have. That's the problem. That's why it's a cheap multiple. That's why it will stay a cheap multiple. I mean, I sort of could have guessed what Tim was going to say, given all the 
op-ed. The op-ed, the op-ed now, activity that he has is, penned, yeah. but I pose the same question to you, Guy, because if the problem is a perception even, just a perception, let's say that there's not even a real problem, of corporate governance. Pete said 10 to 15 right. percent, they could shift back to 125. I mean, that's probably exactly right. And, you know, sports, you like sports sort of analogies. Love sports analogies. Sure. we got some time today because we're going to like 7 o'clock tonight. Vamp! <laughs> so, but I'm going to use, you know, Facebook for years was playing offense. And they were doing it extraordinarily okay, well. Playing offense. Now they're forced to play defense. And that is very difficult in this environment because everybody's coming after them. So... Tim's been on this for a while. Yeah. How do you buy the stock? I thought last quarter when they reported on Halloween, I thought that quarter and the, and the comments it made was good enough to have put in the bottom. And for about a day and a half, it looked that way. And here we are right back down. So to answer your question, I think 125 handle. And Dan, what quarter are we in in the Facebook business in terms of their issues as it relates <laughs> Listen, to trust Tim, and government? She asked the questions around here, all right? So I'm going to answer the I one. I mean, am that I she here? Did I have to, to very, come in today? So the I question mean, was no, 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 I, just, I, I, I want to keep the metaphors I thought, going. I thought, please. Pete, your, your initial reaction is a good one. I think it would signify that there's some bigger issues here. I think one thing that's really important for them is to keep this stuff kind of compartmentalized before we see what the governments are going to do. And I think it's also really important to remember it wasn't more than maybe a year ago. Yeah. where her name was being bandied around as maybe a replacement to Bob Iger or yeah. when Uber yeah. needed a new CEO or something totally. like that. And, you know, it's really a shame. I just feel like because she probably is a rock star CEO sort of candidate, but that's on the back burner for now. All right. So ahead, we will have much more on yesterday's market so often. Answer your tweets about how to manage your portfolio into year end. So you can send us your questions to at CNBC Fast Money on Twitter. Plus, oil edging higher today as OPEC gets ready for its big meeting tomorrow. And a top technician says we are heading for an energy breakout. We will tell you the two names he is buying. All the details right after this. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to a very special edition of Fast Money. We are getting you ready for tomorrow's open after what has been a wild week for the market already. Now, after yesterday's wild ride that saw the Dow down 800 points, adding to the selling we've seen since the peak in September, the Dow has now fallen 7% from the highs, S&P 500 down 8%, and the Nasdaq down 12%. And, of course, a big fear factor for the market, the Fed. It released uh, the Beige Book minutes moments ago. Let's get to Bob Pisani, who's standing by at the Plasma, to break all of this down. Hey, Bob. The important thing is, for once, it's not necessarily about the Fed. This is really about fear of growth here and lack of growth. Tim Seymour had that at the top of the show, and he's absolutely right. Two things are scaring traders this week. Look here. Number one, you've got the inversion of the yield curve. Here's the two-year yield. 
wait a minute, here's the five-year yield. That's not supposed to happen. This is in the last couple of days. When that happened yesterday, people said, uh-uh, because to them, that signals some kind of slowing growth in the future. How much? Well, that's debated. We don't know. Other thing that's bothering people, and this is a little bit technical in nature, S&P 500, 12.05 yesterday, 27 50. That is exactly the 200-day moving average. It hit that at 12.05, and look what happened. The market just fell apart. Why is something so magical about the 200-day? There isn't anything really, but a lot of traders use it as a shorthand, indicating that the market is notably weak or that growth may be notably weak. So you have two factors indicating some kind of weakness. By the way, this happened October 11th. We hit the 200-day moving average, and the market dropped 2%. Same thing happened. So obviously, there are some traders that are pegging that 200-day as a potential. Let's lighten up on the uh, on the uh, trade. Uh, trade. So here's S&P below 200-day moving average, flatter yield curve. These Both of these say slow down. Let's take some money off of the table to some of the trading community here. Also here, remember we've got some crowded trades going on, and I think this was really a factor in what happened yesterday. Number one, we had long fang, and we know what happened with that unwinding a little while ago. We've got long U.S. dollar. That's still working. Dollar's still really strong here. But wait a minute. Short treasuries, a lot of people betting that the yields would move up, the tr- prices would move down, particularly on the long end. That has not happened. And I think we saw a major problem yesterday with some uh, short covering in that particular situation. Short covering, this is UBS, likely contributed significantly to Tuesday's yield decline. Overall, what matters to the markets? Remember the three things that are moving the markets. The Fed, rate hike fears, I'd say those concerns are lower now. Post-Powell speech, trade wars, still uncertain. But right now, the global growth is the main issue, and that's what's been moving the markets the last couple of days. Melissa, back to you. You know, Bob, on that 2750 level, you know, Nomura had a note out <laughs> yesterday saying that CTAs were using 2763 as their sell signal, so there's a lot of overlap there. In terms of what we saw in, terms, in the market action yesterday, how much do you think had to do with the fact that we are closed today and, and just sort of squaring up positionings? I mean, yesterday we were noting throughout the day that the volume wasn't there, that there seemed to be a buyer strike, uh, and that volatility wasn't as high as you yeah. thought it might be, which is sort of the setup going into you know, a non-trading day it usually happens on a weekend, but in this case, uh, during the middle of the week when we weren't trading. It was a little unusual that the VIX at 19, you would have thought the VIX on something like that would have gone to 23, 24, or 25. Remember, though, this month is traditionally a low period of volatility for the VIX because of the trading days that are off overall. I can't really speak to why we didn't move up a little bit more on the VIX. I think that the fact that we were closed may have been a small factor, but don't kid yourself. When you get that kind of inversion of the yield term, even short term and drop below the 200-day moving average, market's going to drop whether we were open today or not. Melissa? All right. Bob, thank you. Bob Pisani, nice to see you here at the NASDAQ in our territory. (laughs) Well, we saw the futures bouncing earlier this morning before they closed. How should we expect the market to open? What will you be looking tomorrow morning on your screen? As an indicator. 100% it's S&P futures at this point. I mean, we can talk about yield curve. We can talk about bond yields. But S&P futures, obviously how China trades. And quite frankly, if there's any, if there's any bounce at all in some of these European banks, those are the things I'll be watching. Well, I'll tell you, Europe had some weak numbers out. Retail numbers, uh, PMIs, we talked about that. I'm going to be watching. Italian bond yields are also something that markets should be concerned about. I'm actually a lot more concerned about Europe than I think other people may be. But I think you have to watch the bond market. I think the bond market is driving the equity market right now, and I think it's part of this is allocations from one to the other. Um, but I think the Treasury market is the tell. If we, if we see yields start to break down to 285, 280 on the 10-year, that's a big concern. Are there signal stocks on your screen, Pete, that you'll yeah, be looking at? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, 
the Nasdaq continues to just lead this thing to the downside. We talked about, and Bob's talked about this at nauseum. You were talking about MAGA, but if you go back to Fang, look at the the amount of dollars that are being lost on a daily basis when the selling really hits that pressure, Mel. So that's huge to me. So do we see any kind of a turn with with Nasdaq names? And if we can get that sort of a turn, and we did a gym on earlier, is talking about tech and healthcare as areas. Well, tech is what we're talking about when we're talking about some of these names. So. If we see any kind of a boost to that at all, by the way, the VIX being up 26%, that was a pretty big jump. Yeah. But the fact that it was 16 to 20, still too cheap. It, given yeah. the moves that we're getting on a daily basis, a 16 VIX gives you 1%. 32 VIX gives you 2%. We're getting moves much larger than that right now. Yeah, you know, this goes back to um, talking about, you know, fear and low volatility and the end of the year. And we were talking about how the S&P is still up 1% of the year. I was talking to a friend of mine who manages over a billion dollars, high net worth individuals. This is yesterday at 3 o'clock when the market was making lows. And I said, you know, what's going on? Uh, your phone ringing off the hook. And we're sitting there talking about, you know, the NFL season. He didn't have a single call. You know, he said on average, you know, some of his accounts are up a couple percent down. <laughs> a couple percent of the year so we're not actually in that kind of panic mode right now because still. because we're off from the highs but they're still doing okay on the year after five years of compounding returns so i think that's a really important thing that may change in january if the growth outlook looks very different people may say listen it's been a great six or seven years I'm ready to take some chips off the table. Well, let's get to a Kramer alert here. No. It has Sweet. been a crazy oh, yeah. week on Wall Street as the Dow closed lower by 800 points yesterday. Jim Kramer joined us now from the Mad Money studio with what to expect from the markets tomorrow. Jim, uh, you know, I think there are a lot of nervous people out there. Well, I, look, it's right to be nervous. Uh, the market just kept going down and down. Melissa, even you don't really think about whether it's one little volume or a lot of volume, but it, it was kind of just a cascade. I think that everyone's going to be fixated on what's going to happen Friday on a non, non-farm payroll. I think that there's a sense that it better be a big number because we know we got a rate hike this quarter uh, coming up this month. And if it's not a big number, I think people are going to say, well, wait a second. They really are just pressing this inverted yield curve bet, which would be terrible. So, I mean, I think that the machines were set to sell. Uh, they're selling. They don't get set to sell every single day. You don't sell every single day of an inverted yield curve because it might be with us for a while. But the people who are saying that this economy is really strong, they better give us a strong number on, on Friday. Or you're going to see a, 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 just a continual pressure on this market. I think the market could be up at the end of the day because people will be short covering ahead of what they think is going to be a, a perfect number. It better be perfect, Melissa. It better be perfect. It better justify uh, Powell's uh, incredible upbeat attitude that just got tempered last week. JC, guy here, huge fan, as you know. So my question to you is this. I know you want the Fed to slow down. I get it. We can agree to disagree on that. One and wait. Let me ask you this, though. If it's because the economy is slowing down, to your point, is the Fed put still in place for the broader market, or does a slowing economy dictate everything. Slowing economy dictates everything, both worldwide and here. Uh, I, I think that we see some strength in Europe, not that much. Remember, we do see weakness in, uh, in China. That's absolutely true. Uh, we've had one area of the country that's been keeping a lot of our uh, growth afloat, which is the Permian. And we know oil's been, been almost cut in half. And yeah, look, both, both coasts are being hurt by the, the state and local elimination. And, and I think you know, the central, the base, so to speak, is just doing okay. So China better put in a lot of orders for Boeing planes between now and Friday. All right, Jim, we're going to let you go. Thank you so much Thanks for your for analysis. Me. Great to see you. Great to see you. Jim Kramer, we should note that Mad Money is unfortunately dark tonight. What? But- 
back tomorrow with a very big show, including an interview with Yum! CEO Greg Creed. And take a look at the others. A real good read on the U.S. economy in terms of the perspectives from those CEOs. So you got to tune in tomorrow at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Do you agree here? Uh, well, the slowdown. Look, the growth I, slowdown dictates everything. I, I think it does. I, I think we need to inject a little bit of positivity in here. I think there's a lot of companies right now that are actually generating significant free cash flow, have a serious buyback uh, tailwind to their earnings profile. I mean, I look at a company like Best Buy, who I think is going to crush it in this holiday period. And, you know, they traded about 10, 10 and a half, 11 times, but they got free cash flow yields of 10%. They've got dividend yield of 3.5%. There are good companies right now that I think are benefiting with a healthy consumer. If these rumors or the, the reports that the iPhone needs to be discounted in order to juice sales. I mean, you're not worried about Best Buy at all because in the past, that has been sort of a, a driving force behind the Best Buy trade. Well, look, we've been speculating for now weeks on Apple and just really what's going on with iPhone shipments. I I think their install base will grow. Maybe it's at a slower rate. And I think there could be some choppiness in those Best Buy numbers, but not because of that this quarter. Yeah. And I got to tell you, I think first half of 2019 could be a disaster for the U.S. consumer. When you think about these tax cuts, okay, annualizing, you think about what tariffs are doing, when you think about just a slowing economy, especially year over year, I don't think you want to be anywhere near um, consumer whatsoever. And, you know, Jim just said something really interesting. We haven't talked about Boeing yet. Did you see that Boeing headline this morning about the 737 MAX? So you think China's going to be buying a lot of those? I mean, I know he's saying that rhetorically, but, you know, that's kind of a big issue. Again, another idiosyncratic issue there. When you talk about the consumer, though, i got to clarify one thing. Are you talking about which which end of the consumer? Are we talking about... Everything? Is it just the high end? I mean, we've gone through a couple. I'm just curious. I'm not not giving you flat. Two thirds of the U.S. No, give me flat. Two thirds of the U.S. GDP is consumer oriented. We're already seeing a slowdown in autos. We're seeing a a slowdown. But how about discounts? I mean, we're seeing a slowdown in thousand dollar iPhones. Okay, so they're moving on down. I mean, it's just pretty clear. But where does it stop? In other words, does it stop with Target still does fine? We're going to have a recession at the end of 2019. You tell me where it stops. I, I just What's your know. thesis? You're asking that question with something in mind. You're, well, because I'm just curious is, if the consumer is really okay. <laughs> I don't know that the consumer's dead, in other words. Right. I, I think they're much stronger than people think. Now, are they weaker than they were? Probably. Well, what, what but the consumer's not even close to dead. What are right. we talking well, about? Consumer confidence is at record highs. You've got job gains for the first time that is best they've been in decades. That's kind of where I was going. going. The, computers, <laughs> the consumer's dead. If you're looking downstream, if you look at every consumer spending recession, Tim, doesn't start at the high-end stuff, the homes, the autos, they start pushing them out? Look, I I think, if anything, you might actually have a little bit of relief on the interest rate side. Um, Home sales have been terrible, and that's a structural issue in the the housing sector, be clear. And in the the auto sector, and in the auto sector, we've actually dealt with that, too. consumer is a bit ridiculous. Well, to be fair, there could be a difference to to Dan's defense. You're the one with the matter of fact statement. I never thought I would say that to to anybody's defense on this. Nobody needs defending. But but there... What you did I say? Have, what I said that there's I a really good chance that the U.S. consumer is going to have a lot of time. I'm, trying, I'm trying to defend what you're saying to them who are disagreeing with you. Yeah, let her give go. Give me that wink. Let her, let her, um, let her vamp. You, let her vamp. You can, you can believe that the consumer is still spending out there, but you can believe that retailers have already priced that in. But the run that we saw on the retailers and what we've seen come off in the retailers is an, ex- is an expression of the forward view of the U.S. consumer. The, right now, what, what did we hear from the Target CEO? Consumers in the best place he's ever seen. Yep. All these data points, consumers Okay, fine. so consumers you're at peak consumer, right is that what you're right. saying? Yeah, maybe peak well, consumer right now. Uh, so, so do you buy the retail stocks today for tomorrow? If you seek peak First of all, today. retail stocks have had a major pullback. Let's be clear about something. We're not buying the consumer stocks at the peak of where they were in June. The consumer stocks rallied from Black Friday to last November to the peak in June, was built off of half of it. I would say three quarters of that was 
most of those companies are not going out of business because of Amazon. It was the existential threat to their business that they weren't online enough. That, to me, was the bigger run. The consumer now, uh, look, we may be at peak jobs. I think it's going to be tough to not be much further than this on the job market. But if you look at wage gains and structural things that have been put into, uh, frankly, lower wage earners are now making $15 an hour. And I don't think they're going to be in a position to cut wages on these people. I think they're holding in. Still ahead. CEO General Motors, Mary Barra, heading to the Hill today to meet with lawmakers after cutting jobs and closing plants here in the U.S. What does it mean for the stock? We will explain. Plus, as the S&P 500 sits more than 8% off its highs, where should investors go to hide out? The traders have four safety plays for you. And later, the New York Times out with a new bombshell report about ousted CBS CEO Les Moonves. We'll talk to Jim Stewart, the man behind the story, next. Much more Fast Money still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. General Motors CEO Mary Barra is heading to Capitol Hill today, meeting with lawmakers to discuss the company's planned job cuts and plant closings in 2019. Elon Moy is live outside the Russell Rotunda with the very latest. Elon. Melissa, Mary Barra is going to be facing a tough audience here on Capitol Hill. She's going to be meeting with Ohio Representative Tim Ryan. That Lordstown plant, the iconic facility that's scheduled to close next year, that's in his district. She'll also be meeting with Ohio Senators Sherrod Brown and Rob Portman. We are actually outside Portman's office right now expecting Mary Barra to arrive perhaps any moment now. Uh, Portman said in a statement before the meeting that uh, the company should not only keep its plant in Lordstown open, but also, if it should bring other production back to the Ohio Valley, that would be a good thing. Now, Sherrod Brown is a potential presidential candidate, and he had already been threatening action against GM over its layoffs. Uh, Sherrod Brown had said that if companies reduce their workforce, if automakers reduce their workforce, he feels that the corporate tax rate should be raised on their foreign earnings. On the flip side, he said that he would give consumers a $3,500 rebate if they buy American cars. Now, this bill isn't going to be going anywhere, but it does give you a sense of the political pressure that Barr is going to be facing as she tries to work this charm offensive here on Capitol Hill. Brown was out with his own statement ahead of this meeting saying, Ohio has stood by GM. Now GM needs to stand by Ohio. Barr is also going to be meeting with the Maryland delegation later on uh, this afternoon. There's a plant in Baltimore that's also facing uh, reduced work workforce as well. And then tomorrow, she's going to do it all again. She'll be meeting with Michigan's delegation tomorrow. Representative Debbie Dingell is one of the strongest allies of GM who has turned into a critic. She has called GM the most disliked company in D.C. right now. She is threatening to oppose the new USMCA and also support ending electric vehicle tax credits if GM doesn't make any changes. Now, we are told that Mary Barr will be making comments to reporters after these meetings, Melissa, if she makes any news, we'll be bringing it to you. Back over to you. Elon, is it your sense at this point that this is sort of a state-by-state -state offensive on GMs, the states, of course, that are the most impacted by these closings? Uh, or is there a broader, is there broader support for, for larger action against GM? 
Absolutely. She wants to make sure that sort of GM's hometown delegations are met with, that she hears their concerns about the layoffs within their districts. Um, I think that is critically important. That's where you want to start to make your case on the Hill, and you can sort of work out after that. But it would be an incredible slight if she didn't make sure to meet with each of these delegations. And of course, lawmakers want to make sure that they have their own time in the spotlight, so they want to do it all separately. Of course they do. Elon, thank you. Elon Moy in Washington, D.C. for us. You know, yesterday the German auto executives went to Washington as well, and, and there's one interesting headline that sort of dovetails with this GM story, and that is VW had, had indicated that it would form some sort of alliance with Ford to use some of their excess capacity. So you get a sense that maybe some of these automakers are a little bit more politically aware of the optics of plant closings, even if the plant closings are because they aren't reaching that capacity number that they need, which is around 80 percent. So I'm curious so. how you feel about this, Dan, because this is the administration that's yeah. doing this. Well, I have two and feelings about this. Like, first things first, you remember Tesla? They were making these Model 3s in tents in Fremont, California. Mm -hmm. They give uh, some good tax incentives to buy those cars. That would be a really politically savvy move to kind of figure out how to take some capacity off of GM and these plants. And I'll just make other one, one other point. Sherrod Brown, who's a Democrat, he said, well, if they're going to leave our state, then maybe they shouldn't have the tax cut that they do on foreign income. Well, that's something that the Trump administration could have attached to these tax cuts late last year, and they just gave it all up. I mean, so to me, I think it's really kind of interesting because they're, you know, they don't have a lot of leverage anymore. GM made a business decision, Yes. right? They're not selling those types of cars, and they finally biting the bullet after probably five years too late and decided to show those plants. Unfortunately for the folks that work there, I get it. I'm not insensitive to that at all. But they made a business decision right. in their mind for the better of GM and their employees and their shareholders. Who's, why are they, is that not allowed now? So take that forward. Now are companies not allowed to fire people? You're not, you're, but you're not, it's, Guy. Not, well, no, apparently no, you're not. You're not allowed to build autos in Mexico anymore. You, you have to, you have to the bring uh, uncompetitive air conditioner plants in, in Indiana and bring them back to life. I mean, this is crazy. Okay, I totally agree with you. Bottom line is, this, this is exactly why, and Dan, you may want to point out Peak Auto, but this is exactly why GM's EPS has the ability to grow, because they've been actually supporting a sedan business that doesn't make any sense. They're going to resegment their business. There's actually a lot of levers to a turnaround, and I think this is an exciting time for GM, and the fact that or they're vilified is crazy. To grow. Yeah, that's is the administration putting handcuffs on GM to grow? Are the, penalties there, are the penalties yeah. there going to make it so difficult yeah. for them? Because I say this right. as a GM owner. Right. I mean, last time you and I were talking about this, I think you thought I was negative on GM, which I'm not. I think they are making the right business decisions, but are they handcuffed to the point where they can't get the growth that we, you and I, are expecting and hoping to see them right. make it? Well, you guys yeah. haven't even mentioned the tariffs and the impact over this year. I mean, like, that's a, a billion dollars yeah. yes. in commodity Steel. costs. Yes. Yeah. 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 True. You like GM? The unintended... I like it more since they did that, but the night, of the, the night that this news right. came out, I said to you there will be tweet bombs from President Trump. I didn't think it would be the next day, you but like the stock it went from 39 and a half to 36. This, but now that you see the administration and lawmakers' response, do you feel the same way? I get that's the question. I think there's, I think there's tremendous headline risk, despite yeah. the fact that they're doing the right thing. I'm trying to answer the question. I think the stock can go lower from here, although I think they're doing everything exactly right. right. 
Switching gears here, crude settling lower today as investors await the big OPEC meeting tomorrow. Jackie DeAngelis is back at headquarters with more. Hey, Jackie. Good afternoon to you, Melissa. Well, crude oil did get a little bit more of a bounce earlier on in the session today. There was electronic trading for crude. It did settle lower under $53 a barrel. It was $52.89. So uh, very interesting that a week before the OPEC meeting, you can see such a difference in price. Remember, we were in free fall there for a while. Now, the expectation, of course, from Vienna is going to be that OPEC will cut a about a million barrels, give or take. Could be a little more than that. Also, that Russia is going to be on board in some ways as well, and that's why that $50 mark is now turning into a support level, at least short term. And it all comes at this crucial time, a time when prices have seen about a $25 a barrel decline. The producers are well aware that there are concerns out there of excess product building up. And in anticipation of this meeting, we're looking at prices up about 5.5% over the course of the last week. Uh, not sure exactly what's going to happen on Thursday and trading Friday after that, Melissa. Remember, the base here has been inflated. So when OPEC cuts off of that, uh, the excitement could wear off a little bit. All right. Jackie, thank you. Jackie DeAngelis at the Commodities Desk. Our next guest says we are setting up for an energy breakout and that there are two stocks that are shaping up to be a buy. Todd Gordon at TradingAnalysis.com is over at the Plasma to break it down. Hey, Todd. Hey, Melissa. Uh, first, before we get into those two stocks, let's take a look at crude oil. As Jackie just mentioned, we're looking at about $50, $52 support. I would draw your attention down into about 45 and here's where we get it. Here's a little trick for you at-home technical gamers. If you want to do a trend line, okay, on the top of a bunch of touch points, but you just can't seem to, to draw one on the bottom to find support, borrow from the top side, slide it down, and that's how you form your parallel channel. So right about the $45 mark, trend must hold. Plus, you've got a 200-week moving average here. So I would just shade 52 to 45 must hold in crude. If it holds and the overall market stabilizes, also I'd add that that dollar is starting to turn lower. That bond move, I think, also lends itself to stronger crude. These stocks could go. 2014 to 18 has been very, very quiet for many of the major oil names. Exxon, I think, with a stabilizing market and oil can break this massive consolidation. So this is a weekly chart. Let's drill down to the daily. And if you do your little lines here and you find the breakout point, the point at which the shorts are going to run for cover, that's going to be just at about the $85 mark in XOM. I'm going to add some to my portfolio upon the breakout. I'm going to add the other half um, in anticipation of that breakout. The other one that looks good here is Chevron, CVX. Kind of a similar story as I showed you on crude oil, right? We have a nice parallel channel here. They tried to chop it through the lows, couldn't break it coming back above, you know, we might have another retest of this old high in CVX. So this is the weekly. I'm going to zoom in right here on the next chart on the daily and give you kind of that trigger out of that consolidation. So here we go. Just draw the lines, find the point at which the ceiling will come in. People are going to be leaning against that. Short start to cover. Breakout happens. I think that happens at about 125. Again, I'm going to buy a piece ahead of it, add on the break, and I think that's uh, two names that could break that kind of four-year consolidation we've seen in the energy names. If oil goes lower, Todd, can you invest in these names still? Do the charts look just as good? I'm, great question. I'm going to take a loss on the 2%, just a half position that I'm going to invest to add to my portfolio. If the overall market does not stabilize, I will get out of these because these have been underperformers for the last couple of years. So if the overall market continues lower, you'll want to get out of the underperformers. So, yeah.
So, so Ty, real quickly on that Chevron chart, yeah. you know, I see three uh, lower highs and I yep. see three lower lows. And if I draw your channel, um, couldn't you just say that it's just as good a short attempt at you, that top end of the channel? Dan, going are you back talking weekly the, or daily? Are you talking this chart or the well, next one? the daily chart. Okay, can we do that daily? I'd love to look at that one. Um, for me, I see... I see that the, the sellers can only go down to about the 107, 108 area here, where, where these guys right here, okay, we're, we're getting more and more and more consolidated. There's a lot of built-up energy here. So usually what happens is the trend of prior that was in place prior will resume. So, yeah, you definitely can say we can go higher or lower from here. But I'd say from a technical point of view, there's going to be a lot of algos that will track this on the buy side and let price kind of show you, lead you into the trade. So, yeah, we could go lower. But if we do go higher, we're prepared and we can add on that move. All right. Thanks, Todd. Great to see you. Todd sure. Gordon, TradingAnalysis.com. What's that game that we play with the duck and the target and everybody gets confused? Uh, uh, Which them or Damn. shoot them or shoot the duck? Whatever that is. <laughs> We've gone yield hunting with some of these names before, with these both of these names, in fact. And I think you have uh, shot Chevron meaning you wanted to buy it? Oh, shooting. If shooting's yes, good, yes. yeah. I love shooting the, that, <laughs> that, that, that the Chevron duck. bird, definitely. I think... <laughs> This gets to a case, again, free cash flow. I like to see that these companies have become more efficient and, and they've learned the lessons from the past. These guys have free cash flow yields that dwarf some of the, you know, the, the highest in their career. So uh, I like Chevron here. I do, too. I own Chevron. I own ExxonMobil. Uh, I, I think it's interesting that oil did hold that $50 level. So if it breaks there, I do think that's going to be pain for some of these names. Yeah. And they'll, they'll break with it. But they've also been in this consolidation, like Todd was just pointing out. And that's this year they didn't react in a monstrous way. I think under, matter of fact, XOM really lagged and eventually started to catch up. But this break in oil obviously has pulled it back down. I think they're too cheap, and I love the free cash flow of both. I don't know how to play this duck game. I know. I shoot, no, Especially when we don't have the graph. It makes it even more difficult. Yeah, I know you're oh, you not mean it's like a theoretical so I'll, I'll play, exercise. I'll play my game, which is buy it or deny it. Okay, fine. And a few weeks... Pete likes that. I like that. He gave me the point. Whatever. If you were a great game, like something else. Yeah. A, stock, a stock called Valero, VLO, was trading around 79 or so, and I went up to the smart board over there. Mm. Power pitch. And I power pitched Power pitch. Yeah. And Dan bet against me. He said, you know what? The real support in this name is 75. He, it was turned out he was correct because the stock didn't trade down there. Yeah. Now, you look at Valero and say, you know, that in the three different regions they operate in, the crack spreads are down anywhere from 25 to 40%. Disastrous. Then you have to ask yourself, is it already in the stock from the move we've seen basically from 120 to current levels? I think the answer is yes. I think a stabilization in crude oil is interesting. I think the risk-reward in Valero means you buy it, don't deny it, Mel. So you're shooting the duck. Dan, shooting what do you duck. do here so with the, energy? One of the reasons why I asked, why I asked Todd that question about that trend, yeah. because he's a technician. He doesn't listen to what OPEC's going to do. He doesn't think about global growth. He looks at charts. I think a lot of traders, a lot of investors look at charts and they use them to kind of reinforce their art, the view that they already have, okay? I've long been saying on this desk as crude went through that period, to me, it speaks more about what's going on with global growth. You were talking about demand or supply, and, this, and I don't know anything about crack spreads. I don't know a lot about this stuff, but I'm just telling you that, that the way the bottom fell out of crude over the last two months speaks to a lot of supply else issue. that we're seeing. Yeah. Demand. It speaks to a lot of else what we're seeing in a slower outputs at re- I mean, output in terms of the U- U.S. outputs at a record right now. The U.S. I mean, like, is the largest producer the in the world. Yeah. Well, I mean, Texas have- produces more than... Okay, but that was the case two months ago when it was trading at 80 bucks. But by the way, I think the best call here are MLPs who have completed restructuring, have production growth of 7-8%, yields that are north of 10%. 
MLPs look interesting. May I ask, do we have to go to break? Because we have no, some time. No, actually, we may, don't. May I ask you oh. a quick question? This is question? a long, no, no, special no, this is completely afternoon edition no, of Fast Money. The beginning of the show, an hour minutes, ago, bro. and it, it is an hour ago. It has been an hour, and we have another half hour to go. Tim gave me a little Ralph Macchio. Sure. Oh, sweep the leg. I thought he was going paint the fence at that moment. No, not paint the fence. My question to you, Matt, and this is a serious question. Wax on, wax off. Wax on, Would you rather you? Am I allowed to do that? Okay. Uh, Ralph Macho movies, The Outsiders, oh, for crying or out loud. Watch him a face. What's karate the name kid? of that movie? Karate. Karate. King Cobra. Karate Kid. Karate karate I'm not. Kid. Oh, the Karate, karate Kid. Outsiders. But what Outsiders was, was a book first, which I read. Essie Hinton. Essie Hinton. Yeah, I, know, I go with I The know, Outsiders. I but the movie I have not seen the movie. Was, I not is seen iconic the movie. at this point. So it's iconic. So who would Pete be if we're the Outsiders? Hey, hold on right now. What's Swayze? Swayze? Sweeping legs or what am I doing? We're in Outsiders now. Swayze. You guys jump to a different movie. I'm going to break. Coming up, it's been a wild ride for the market this year and if you're nervous about where you stand heading into year end the traders will tell you how to seek safety plus got a question about the sell-off you can send us a tweet to FCNBC fast money guy here will answer them huh? later in the show if you can't we'll find somebody else I'm Melissa Lee you're watching fast money on CNBC first in business worldwide much more fast money still ahead Welcome back to Fast Money. The market having another wild week of selling after what was a rough October and November. But as investors run for cover, the defensive sectors are benefiting. Utilities, real estate, consumer staples, the only three sectors that are positive so far this quarter. This, uh, while once red-hot sectors have taken a hit, with the tech wreck still continuing. So with what is sure to be a wild ride into your end, where can you hide out? Heat, I hate say? this game the most of all the games oh, right. we play, and the reason oh, I do it is because in Mouse Grill, and it's only because you know what? I don't believe in the the idea of hiding out. Okay, but fair. I'll play the game wow. because play that's what, game. that's what we're here a for. Aggressive. I just had a pitch last week, U.S. Bank. I, I love that name, U.S.-centric. It doesn't have a lot of the different headaches of other places. Guy brought up something that I forgot to mention during my pitch, but it was something that I had in my head. Warren Buffett has been in this name for a very long period of time. I think he's been right and continues to add to this name on top of that. I think when you look at the management team as well as some of the growth, this is a great name. And it's been hanging in there, even as the rest of the financials have been getting punished. It's still hanging in there pretty well. Yeah, this was a fast pitch of yours. It was a fast pitch a week or so ago. Pitch. Yeah, power pitch. Or power pitch, sorry. Otherwise known as power pitch over there. Power launcher. Was this fast uh, Dan, where do you go? Come on, hide Dan. Out. Come so, on, Dan. Where are you hiding out? I think uh, Disney's traded really interestingly. Not defensively. I know you don't like that term, but you know. That's a technical was, term? Interestingly? Can he can he do his I'm thing? Sorry. He's got We're his power box. This is my time okay. to shine. Listen, I, I think this <laughs> actually so really good relative strength. I think there's a lot of parts of their businesses that are kind of coming together at a time where 2019, 20 is set to be Bob Iger's year. He had kind of set out the playbook as they move into some of these OTT services. They're buying Fox. We know that means for their content. You put it all together. I think this becomes less discretionary. Obviously, the parks are pretty discretionary, but I think the service that they're going to provide towards the end. Into 19 into 20 is going to be really interesting, and I think investors are going to start positioning for that for a stock trading about. I own it too, but can I ask you something? The crown jewel is ESPN. Yeah. What, what's your take on that right now? Because well, that has been something that's pushed this stock around significantly. Yeah, I mean, listen, they're seeing it. I'm with you. I do like it. deceleration better. in right. the churn. I mean, this has been a multi-year thing, yep. and I think that's going to be part of their OTT circle. Guy Dami. All right. It's Give interesting. Me your Decel- deceleration is actually a good thing in that circumstance. Yeah. We have an amazing. I'm not going to give it away because I don't do that. 
but he w- I won't even say if it was a he or she. Uh, you know what, man? You're talking kind of too person, much. Once again, this kind of person saying is too here. Much. Kind of let it up. Special and guest. An unbelievable guest. Special guest. Anyway. Hideout trade, please. Oh, hideout trade. Yes. So the, the crew in EC called me. They said, we need a hideout trade. And I, and I said, you know what? I like Big Cap Pharma. They said, no, 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 you can't do that. you got to pick a specific name. I said, well, if you look, Eli Lilly's done very well. Merck, my wife's a scientist there, as you know. That stock's been extraordinary since 55. I think you might have power pitched that. That sucker almost traded 80 the other day. That's a tremendous fast move. Pitch. But fast pitch. I, oh, fast pitch, right. <laughs> but now i got to do one name, so I'll give you the name. And it's been I'm pretty steadfast in that Pfizer drug has been extraordinary since the spring, since President Trump tweeted at Pfizer drug that stock has had probably the single biggest move over the six-month period that it's had in the last 10 years maybe valuation is getting stretched but I think the way that Pfizer's traded in the wake of these sell-offs makes it extraordinarily interesting Tim yours I'm hiding out at Home Depot it's down 20% that's not the reason you're buying it US comps are actually surprising to the upside this housing thing doesn't hurt them in fact if anything people are staying in their homes and their home improving these guys are the best of the breed you're buying this weakness in Home Depot US comps vacation Mm-hmm. Nice. What, what did you say? Staycation. Oh, staycation. Staycation. Why we're talking about staycation? That sounds like no staycation. Like <laughs> so guy's wife got the brains and the looks. What'd you get, bud? <laughs> the bills. <laughs> uh, let's hope Linda's not listening. Still ahead, CNBC's big deal or no good. deal premiere is just hours away, and host Howie Mandel will join us when Fast Money. What? One of America's most popular and beloved game shows is back. The all-new Deal or No Deal kicks off at 8 p.m. right here on CNBC. And this, nearly a decade after the show's iconic run on NBC ended, who better to give us a preview of what Amazing. is to come than Howie Mandel himself, the host and the executive producer. Wow. Wow. Welcome to Oh, great to have you back great. on the show. Ooh, it's great to be back. I can't tell you how thrilled and nervous and scared I am for tonight. This is the preview. Uh, the only one word describes what you're about to see at 8 o'clock right here on CNBC, and that is wow. Wow. Because it is wow. Because we were just talking before we got on the air that it's hard to kind of judge what how people make decisions and how people make. It should be an educated decision, but sometimes <laughs> there are emotions. And I think the same thing happens oh, in, the, in the market. Oh, it happens in it happens to Pete all the time. Yeah, greed, no greed. It's agreed or no greed. But the thing is, and people watch, we had a special on Monday on on another network, and it was... You know, a guy turned down $333,000, was not a good choice, went home with $5. Tonight, you watch because we have a new, and I talked about it, there's a new little twist in Deal or No Deal 2.0, and that gives the contestant one chance, one chance to counteroffer, to negotiate. So you can kind of get the, the, uh, yes, you can kind of get the process, and it's got to make sense. I don't know that people really understand that. You know, the offer is $100,000, the banker will offer you. And some people might think, well, I'll just say, if you give me a million, I'll leave now. (laughs) But it doesn't work like that because she, the banker, is working with numbers and odds. And it's got to make sense. So you got to figure out, like the guy on Monday who had $333,000 offer he didn't use Why the counter would you turn that down i mean that you got to wonder how lucky in their real life are they for them to say you know what at this point in time i'm gonna go all in i feel really lucky <laughs> well i'll tell you what it is i'll tell you what it is and because i try to understand yeah. what these people are thinking and they think okay it's a 50 50 shot at the three quarters of a million 
you're thinking, but you're not in the midst of yeah. all these people screaming, yeah. and you don't have, more. you know, 15, they've never been on television before, and they Thrilling. think, when am I going to have this opportunity again? And kind of like Vegas, even though I say the offer is $333,000 to them, and I keep saying that's real, <laughs> but I think they think it's the house's money, you know? And I think that's what the, the thought behind Vegas when they give you chips mm -hmm. because it's not real money. It's not money. But it is, when I say the offer is $333,000, that's a slam dunk, 100%. It is yours. Your life is definitely changed. Yeah. I don't think that sinks into people. May I ask? That's Howie Mandel. You may ask Howie Mandel. That's, you are that, You realize. Did he raise his I hand do realize it's Howie Mandel. <laughs> it's unbelievable. It's twice in like a week. Twice in a week. It's the, our this honor. Year, like deja vu, but the really, silhouette but really of the banker. Is the, me? The, the banker has like a silhouette. She's in silhouette and you yes. sort of see. Is you she, know what's weird? Is she an actual he, actuary or is it? No, what's going on there? Well, she does no business and I am talking to her. The weirdest thing about her is when we aren't taping the show, if you even see her in a restaurant, she is a silhouette. Come on. I'm telling you, wherever she goes, is she this woman right now? is backlit. That's a I, think she's I can't right over see there. her, but that's her thing, backlit. You should I, see her. I Selfies her. are all backlit. Everybody's <laughs> backlit. It's amazing. That's it exactly how she looks. So it is not a silhouette. That's her. <laughs> Always been best backlit. You believe him. Do you know all the names <laughs> of the people with the cases? Or are they in your ear? Oh, Be honest. Oh, no, no, I don't wear, I can't wear an earpiece. I have enough voices in my own ear uh -huh. that I'm trying, that I'm medicated uh, you for. You know that. I, it's not an amazing thing. There's 26 people standing there. I shoot show you after show. You don't know show. 26 names? My, my daughter's a teacher. They don't, it's like they're sitting in the same, day. I know they're, and, I, and if I don't remember their names. You make it up. The number is right there. Well, Seven. I, I used to say, <laughs> their hands. but I have also said to them that if I do give the wrong name, don't say I gave the wrong name. Just make me, don't yeah. make me look like an idiot. Isn't that right, Debbie? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Good luck tonight on your premiere. <laughs> of Let's make it. No, only kidding. Tremendous. Thank you, Howie Mandel. Oh, everybody tune back. in. I'll be tweeting live. Yes. Yes. No deal. Deal no deal. Deal. Tonight yeah. on CNBC, 8 p.m. Eastern time. This is the premiere, and you will not want to miss it. Thank you again, Thank Howie. You. Great yeah. to see you. Still ahead, the New York Times out with a bombshell report about how CBS handled the controversy around former CEO Les Moonves. The man behind the report, Jim Stewart, will be here. More Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. A new report in the New York Times says Les Moonves destroyed evidence and misled investigators as he faced multiple allegations of sexual misconduct. Let's bring in New York Times columnist and CNBC contributor Jim Stewart. Jim, great to have you with us. Thanks. Um, the allegations are just baffling. I mean, some of them are just jaw-dropping. I know. They're, they're really unbelievable. And I've been doing this a long time, and I've seen a lot. And yet I'm still, every time something new comes out, I'm, I'm frankly astonished. Um, in your column, though, uh, which goes along, of course, with this investigative piece, there is this notion that the board knew about this, that there is some liability on, on the part of the board when it comes to all of this over the years. Well, I, I don't think it's just a notion. I mean, this report by the lawyers is pretty clear that board members knew. One in particular, Arnold Copelson, was privy to the most lurid details of one of the worst incidents. And when the woman told him about it, he said, well, that's that's trivial. And by the way, we all did that, you know, like like big deal. He's the one who later when this some of the surface in the board said he didn't care if 30 more women came forward. Les Moonves still had his total support. So there's the mindset of somebody. Now, he I will say he died recently, so he isn't here to defend himself. But the evidence is pretty compelling. Then there are the directors who, according to the report, 
met with Moonves and said, no, we're hearing all these rumors. We're hiring a law firm to look into it. But by the way, we don't need to know any details. Like basically saying, well, don't really tell us. In other words, it's better not to know and not to ask than to be confronted with the reality and then to have to do something. In other words, just kind of sweep this all under the rug. And that's at the top, the board. And then it filters down through high-ranking executives, many of them named in this report, down to assistants who were working for him who apparently knew that there was a woman on the CBS payroll whose job, I don't know how to put this in a nice way. Was to be available to do sexual favors for less money. Yeah, whenever, whenever he wanted wow. them. Like, what did he have, a buzzer on his desk that he pushed and she would then well, come like in or something? Like a dinner bell almost. It's, I mean, it's just mind-boggling. It is truly mind-boggling. And yet nobody things. said anything or did anything to stop it. And this was going on year after year after year. From a shareholder perspective, though, I mean, there's liability, it seems, on the part of the company. I mean, how do you think well, oh, about yeah. that? We're going to see a lot of lawsuits coming out of this. I think from lawyers representing some of these women who are victims, lawyers on behalf of the shareholders, I mean, we still have to see this is of all the Me Too incidents. This is the one that has had the biggest impact on a major company, a major brand where reputation is at stake. And I think how they handle it now is going to be very critical to how, how the shareholders ultimately fare. And I would imagine this would uh, color the way you see CBS's future. I mean, if there is this great liability hanging over the company, that's got to give pause to anybody who's charting out the future for CBS. Absolutely. I mean, one of the big issues is how do you retain and attract talent when you've got an environment like this? Now, CBS says, oh, it's all, it's all changed. Moonves is gone. A lot of these people are gone. We've turned over a new leaf. They're going to have to prove that. They're going to have to demonstrate that. And I think part of that is they're going to have to come to ter terms with what happened. They're going to have to be honest and transparent about it. And they're going to have to come forward and explain what steps they are taking, and among other things, to make employees feel safe to come forward if something like this happens. I mean, somebody pointed out to me, you know, the controlling shareholder has been Sumner Redstone. Now, he's not exactly a pillar of sexual propriety. Is that a nice way of putting it? Mm -hmm. And he's the controlling shareholder. Then you had Moonves as the chief executive. Why would an employee feel safe about calling some hotline right. with that environment? They've got to show that that has changed. Yeah. They've got a long road ahead of them. Jim, thank you so much for coming by. Sure. Always great to see you. Jim Stewart of the New York Times. Up next, Final Trades. Time for the Final Trades. Pete. I'm going to give you Merck. It hit a new high just the other day. I think this stock is actually one of those that can hang in there and go higher. Pipeline's delivery. Giddy up. Tim. So check this out. Deal or no deal with oh. China, of course, I think Boeing continues to run. In fact, I don't think their business is as dependent on global trade as people think. There's only one or two players in the world that do what they do, and the free cash flow is insane. Boeing, deal. He's Will you stop pandering to Howie? He's gone, He's gone. already. Just he watch the, the show tonight. Yeah. 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 Did you do your final show? Yeah. He said Disney. So Twitter looks interesting to me here. I mean, I think it's held in rather well around the $30 level, Mel. All right. That does it for us. See you back here tomorrow <laughs> at our regular time, 5 p.m. Meantime, don't go anywhere. Shark Tank starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, 
Positively FedEx.